0: Hi, my name is Daniel, and welcome to another episode at Focal Point. Today we're collaborating with the BIG Banking and Markets team run by Josh Mars and myself. Let's jump right in with Josh and Aisha, who led the conversation today.
1: So Today we be, we are honoured to be hosting Mr. George Athanasopoulos, who is currently a Group Managing Director and Co-Head of Global Markets at UBS Investment Bank. Mr. Athanasopoulos has had an extensive career in the industry, working at Barclays and EuroBank, and now with an 11-year-long career at UBS, where Mr. Ana- Athanasopoulos has been focusing on forex, precious metals, heading rates and credit, and currently global markets. And now I'd like to give the word to Mr. Athanasopoulos.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, very quickly, thank you for for inviting me. Uh, first of all, even though I am a UBS executive, um, all views that I express here are my views and don't represent UBS's views. And obviously, any market views that we might discuss today and I'm sure we'll have a discussion on our markets should not be interpreted as investment bias. Now, in terms of what I do, I'm um, first and foremost, and this is how we should approach this, a leader of a business. So, you know, my job it has to do with day to day management of a, of a large business, strategic planning, technology transformation, talent development. We can discuss all of these. My job is to facilitate the investment and risk management transactions of my clients and i do that by executing the orders making markets in the instruments they require and obviously in the process i often assume market and credit risk, which i then have to to manage so i'm very involved in trading approach it in a slightly different capacity to somebody like a hedge fund manager
1: yeah thank you so much for that introduction um so i think we'll start with the questions then uh with the first one focusing more Um, on your role, you already gave a good intro uh, for us, but if you could go more um, in depth into what you do on a day-to-day basis.
0: So I co-head Global Markets in the Investment Bank of UBS. Uh, And I'm also a member of the Investment Bank Executive Committee since 2012. So if we break down the title, what obviously co-head means I have a partner. Global Markets is one of the two businesses that the Investment Bank has. And from the title you can, See, it's, uh, it's global, which means there's about 3,000 of us in 30 countries and 50 locations. We execute equities in more than 100 uh, trading venues in 50 countries. This means we can trade over 200 billion shares in a single year just in the US. So, as you can imagine, it's a pretty sizable uh, business. Who do we do this, uh, all this trading for? We execute for anyone from governments, corporations, banks. What I do day to day in this business, clearly the overall management of the business is my responsibility. That includes the key business decisions. Um, I develop the vision of the business. I develop the business plan. I also supervise the execution of the business plan. I run relationships with several of our major clients. I also run the relationships with the other divisions uh, in the group. And one area I'm personally very heavily involved in and might be of interest in today's discussion is uh, digital transformation and uh, product innovation.
1: That's great thank you so much um, and maybe if we can talk about your career overall um, sort of if you could go briefly more into your journey to where you are today and what you learned from your work in the different areas maybe at UBS or before.
0: The short uh, summary is first of all I come from a family of Greek engineers, so you know coming from a very traditional Greek family, not much of a choice as to what I would study. I had to go to engineering school. Didn't like it very much, Uh, but I really enjoyed math. I really enjoyed programming. I ended up specializing on numerical methods and did my thesis on heat transfer. Finished uh, my my first degree, um, came to London, contemplated doing a PhD in engineering, but as I said, I didn't love it that much. Uh, I ended up doing a graduate course in shipping and finance, believe it or not, and finally, entered the banking business almost by accident in November nineteen ninety two in London. It was a terrible time for for jobs. I remember doing forty applications, getting thirty eight rejections, and I think I was about two weeks before uh, packing it in and going back to Athens for good. Um, I finally found a role at Northwest Markets. I started as a junior trader and a quant, and I actually discovered that pricing uh, derivatives looked a lot like uh, solving heat transfer equations. So. Finally, I found something that I could actually do in a, in a sector that I didn't know at all. Two years later, I was asked to move to Hong Kong. I've since then lived and worked in, in London, in Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, Athens, and uh, Switzerland, which is where I am now, Zurich. Uh, and variety of roles, I've done roles from ranging from quantitative analytics and, and programming, trading, structuring, sales, And of course, management, which is what I do now, and uh, five different banks. I moved from Nagos Martis to to Merrill Lynch, then from Merrill Lynch to Barclays Capital. Barclays Capital, I spent a year uh, on the other side of the fence as a client working for Eurobank in in Athens, and then moved to UBS, um, where I've been for 11 years. In terms of learnings, I would say, look, I learn every day. If I had to pick a few takeaways, I would say that no career moves in a straight line. So sometimes, you know, even lateral or backward moves resulted in great career progress. Keeping an open mind on career moves was very important. I think the second thing I learned was that uh, choosing the right mentor really matters a lot. Other people who manage me often understood my skills and areas of development much better than myself. Um, having worked in so many countries and with such a diverse group of individuals, I got the opportunity to work in very diverse teams and I found that working with such a diverse group of people really enhances uh, one's vision, it enhances your execution ability and definitely encourage it whenever you're building teams, build them as diverse as possible. And finally, the, the last thing, and it might sound uh, strange as a final takeaway, is that the greatest assets, anyone can have it in this industry, are being humble and having integrity.
1: Yeah, thank you for that answer. Um, Now, if we like gradually move on more to like technical things and discussions, um, you already touched upon it briefly, but what sort of inspired your focus on Forex, on rates on credit? You've been doing a lot of that uh, for the past 11 years. So if you could maybe expand more on that.
0: I was in Forex, uh, it wasn't inspiration, it was necessity. That was the, the first job I had. I actually stayed in for 15 years and I loved foreign exchange because one of those asset classes where you need to know really a bit of everything. Currencies are impacted by absolutely everything, the rates, uh, the level of equities, uh, the uh, direction of uh, commodities, absolutely everything in the world impacts effects. So I actually loved it uh, very much. Expanding into rates, is a natural career evolution for somebody doing FX. If you're doing FX, you have some exposure to rates anyway because you know forward markets and FX are really rates markets. And um, getting into credit is a completely different ballgame. So one has to understand you know corporate capital structure, default risk. These were not things that you deal with when you you deal with foreign exchange. And I would say that is is the one thing that's probably closer. Um, to equities than uh, than the other two asset classes. Now, why did I stay all these years? Because, you know, I've been running a fixed income business across rates and credit since 2013, and I very much consider myself an FRC guy through and through. I think it's been incredibly interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, this is an industry that has seen wallet shrinkage for eight years, since between 2011 and, I would say, 2019, the, the wallet in this industry has been shrinking by probably about 30%. Why? Because clearly monetary policy has compressed interest rate curves, so things move less. And also the compression in interest rate curves has actually compressed volatility. So the business has become less uh, lucrative. At the same time, the, this changed by the way in 2020. The amount of capital one has to hold to be in this business uh, is higher than it was uh, 10 years ago. And finally, you know, clearly market structure and regulation has impacted the uh, the market quite significantly by adding a lot of transparency on one hand, which is great, but also adding some cost and complexity because you've seen uh, rules such as, you know, the requirement to trade on clearinghouses, et cetera, which are adding additional layers of complexity. The final thing is that, you know, technology has seen, has disrupted this market quite dramatically. And, you know, to give you an idea of how dramatically uh you know i was looking at the currency ratings uh, last year the third largest dealer right now is uh, is a non-bank actually run by a, a a former competitor that i respect very much who is uh, running a team of 140 uh, people has 40 percent profit margin out of this business and probably has the largest market shape not the largest one of the two largest markets in in equity lit markets in europe so you see a huge company with a huge footprint remember we are three thousand people there are 140 people yet they're one of the largest dealers in some of our asset classes so this is the type of technology disruption that you currently see in the market so this is a market that requires continuous optimization and continuous challenge so that challenge and that innovation has kept me interested for all of these years
1: all right. Yeah. Thank you for your answer. Um, so I guess since you touched upon sort of technology affecting the markets and everything, if we shift more towards um, markets now, what do you think are the key sort of factors and forces that are driving or shaping um, the markets today?
0: I think, I think there are dozens of, uh, of factors. I'll tell you a little bit about the ones that I'm, I'm more focused on. Well, obviously, the evolution of the pandemic is one, uh, rates and liquidity landscape, which I think, including inflation. China is the third one. I think the structure of investment assets is really important. Technology and finally regulation. Regulation is a much more long-term uh, thing that is shaping markets, uh, so I'll, I'll mention it last. I think in terms of COVID, I think the important thing to, to mention now is that we're in a situation where, as, uh, as one of our strategists recently said, the virus runs the real economy and we're seeing the, the shutdowns and the mobility restrictions the the destruction in the real economy while the vaccine actually runs the market so we're seeing the the market exuberance comes uh so vaccinations are, as you know are expected to accelerate quite significantly from q2 onwards i think we'll see mortality drop at that point and mobility restrictions ease. so we're expecting a pretty major uh growth impulse at that point the biggest change from mobility restrictions actually is going to be expected in europe I think Asia is is back-loaded on its vaccine uh, program, so it will benefit in H two onwards. Uh, The U.S. is is front-loaded, so Europe is where we'll see the biggest change. And remember that while over the past year, goods as a category, as a sector, have completely normalized, services remain depressed. So we expect to see some expenditure switching due to the vaccination progress, and that will clearly drive sector earnings. I think when you look at interest rates and liquidity, I would break it down to three. Monetary and fiscal stimulus, uh, what is happening with real rates? And finally, what is happening, if anything, with inflation? So my view is uh, here, first of all, on monetary and fiscal stimulus, clearly we've seen unprecedented stimulus five times more than just in 2020 than what we saw during the global financial crisis. And central banks are still pumping probably half a trillion, uh, 500 billion a month into this uh, market. And by the way, it's worked. So credit spreads have remained tight, bank loan impairments have remained low. The thing to keep in mind is that we're seeing also a shift from monetary uh, easing to fiscal easing, and that creates some pretty significant asymmetries. We've come from a decade of synchronized monetary easing, and we're now moving to a type of easing that is clearly more political. It's clearly not globally coordinated, because it cannot be. Not everybody has the same room to ease. The transmission mechanism is very different, and the resulting deficits will actually pose challenges that we need to be addressed in the future. So, the way in which those deficits, the fiscal deficits, will actually be reined back is going to be different by country. We also have the the new one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package, which I think is going to impact market liquidity quite dramatically. On real rates, the the one thing that you should you should uh, take away is that we've had four decades of secular decline in real rates and inflation. And I actually think further rising real rates from where we are now could actually result in widening of credit spreads and a correction in equities. Um, Inflation, talk about inflation, we can talk about it a bit more later. I think current break even is clearly pretty high. Base effects from commodity and uh, energy prices are likely to feed through in, in Q2. So I think this will fuel further, you know, peaking of those inflation expectations. The question is: Are we in a new inflation uh, paradigm, or is this a transitory? And I have a view. Again, we can discuss the view later if you are interested. Um, China, China has been the first to recover from COVID. Didn't ease as much as the other countries. It's also probably the greatest, if if, if quite remote, uh, risk of a crash in the market if housing market in in China was. And finally, it's going to be impacted by, by, by both, you know, the change in U.S. administration uh, with uh, President Biden coming in and also the new U.S. stimulus package. And again, we can discuss that as a force if you are interested in, in Asia in particular. Um, in terms of the structure of investment, invested assets, and this might sound like a strange thing to focus on. You need to remember that up until 2020, we've seen a protracted period through which we saw the monetary easing where passive investing has risen. And we've also seen a rise of um, uh, asset management strategies such as risk parity, risk control, all of which have resulted in an increase of uh, investment correlation. So the market tends to move as they herd more and a compression of volatility. Now, since the COVID crisis, we're actually seeing a significant increase in dispersion. We're seeing, especially post-April, I think in April, we saw a further increase in correlation and then dispersion started. We saw a significant drop in bond yields across, uh, across the board, a significant rise in volatility and a decorrelation of, of assets. So what is happening now is passive strategies are getting challenged. I think active managers are doing quite well. Portfolio insurance is becoming more important. You couldn't get anybody to hedge volatility two years ago. Now everybody's looking at volatility as a as a hedge for the market. And I would say the days of the balanced portfolio, of, you know, sixty percent, uh, uh, sixty forty the, the equities bonds, I think is uh, is is over. Uh, finally, on on technology, very quickly, um, you're seeing a number of things, and we can pick any one of them to discuss if you want. You're seeing an emergence of new corporate champions and as you know right now you look at the top 10 largest companies nine of them are digital and you know the tenth is sort of 50 percent invested in digital you've seen a huge rise in algorithmic trading which is transforming the markets uh, forever we're starting to see the impact of social media on uh, markets uh we've seen the emergence of digital assets and also blockchain technology which i think will transform uh, the industry over the next uh, few years and finally it's becoming all about data. So the use of data in investing uh, today is uh, is becoming incredibly important. And we've seen data techniques such as machine learning and natural language processing, applications of artificial intelligence uh, come into our market quite uh, quite aggressively.
1: All right, yeah, thank you for the answer. And I guess one uh, more sort of market related topic that we could touch upon would be sustainable finance. And how do you think that is impacting the fixed income market, the markets overall, perhaps the topic of sustainability. If you have an outlook core,
0: yeah, I think I, I, I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the start of uh, that market. Well, first of all, we've seen huge acceleration of investor flows into this, uh, into ESG in general. We've also reached an inflation uh, inflection point, so nobody considers it a nice to have anymore; it's a must have. It's a key risk management decision to be in, uh, in sustainable finance and also we're seeing an acceleration of uh, on the other side of the, of the sub- supply chain we're seeing an acceleration of net zero commitments and a focus on this you know climate change and transition to green economy so the trend is now moving in this space from voluntary disclosures to regulatory requirements and this gives transparency to the market and will help it grow if you look at the outside fixed income, if you look at the ETF market, for example, quarterly flows have gone from, if I remember correctly, 5 billion uh, Q1 19 to over 40 in Q1 20. And I think they will be higher still in Q1 uh, 2021. And um, I think the market has seen in 2020 that sustainable investment is not just good for our conscience because we're doing something good for, for the environment, good for society. It also aids performance. So, one one other thing around performance of, of ESG is if you look at how ESG indices perform, the most correlated would call the minimum volatility style, which is a favorite of you know many risk-averse investors. So it's attracting a lot of interest because of that as well. Now on fixed income, there are some pretty important challenges and that that's why I think it's only just becoming the focus. ESG data not always available or sometimes you know pretty incomplete. So I think especially in emerging markets and, and in high yields. So harmonization between rating agencies and advisors is not quite there yet on uh, on ESG and the final thing is bonds by definition have got duration characteristics and you also have this divergence between bondholder rights and shareholder rights which complicate further the, the definition of, uh, of fixed income in, uh, in sustainable finance the thing to remember in ESG is that we have a fundamental move away from instruments that are defined as use of proceeds and i can only use the proceeds to finance a sustainable project green or social project you know something that uh, uh, conforms to my to, to esg objectives so we're moving away from those instruments and we're moving now to instruments that focus on the overall environmental and sustainability performance of the issue so that gives it a closer alignment on transitional objectives so The issuer now is has KPIs that are linked to the overall environmental and sustainability performance. And if they meet them, they pay a rate of X, and if they don't meet them, they pay a rate of X plus. Uh, And we actually uh, saw the publication of the sustainability linked. These are called sustainability linked bonds. We saw a publication of the SLDP principles uh, back in uh, back in June. So everything is growing, but we're seeing a slow diversification away from uh, green bonds, with social bonds actually going quite fast. Green bonds are still the biggest, and also sustainability bonds, the bonds linked to the overall performance, uh, starting to make uh, an appearance. It's a European market. Europe, I think, is uh, about four percent of the total supply, and fifty percent of uh, the supply is actually denominated in euro. With dollars being the second largest currency, so both Asia and the US are, are growing strongly. But uh, I think, you know, under the new US administration, which is much more focused on this, we might see even faster growth. In summary, you know, this is here to stay. It's a it's a very important uh, development in the in the market, and I expect it to 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 grow and grow further.
1: Great. Okay. Thank you for. Um, the answer and I think now we'll open um, it to audience questions. So please feel free to raise your hand or just unmute yourself um, and ask a question. Uh, Firstly, thank you for this talk. So my question is about your division specifically. So how do you see the global markets division in investment banks over the next 10, 20 years? Do you think the rise of automation, mobile brokers and algorithmic
0: trading posing a threat to your division? actually on the contrary uh i i actually see all of those things look i i, I it might sound strange but i i i have a, a view in my career which 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 is change is always good regulatory change technology change is always good same thing applies here the industry is going to become much more challenged i think from a technology perspective i think the barrier to to entry, because of that requirement to be technologically strong, is going to go up. I think there's going to be plenty of new entrants in this market that will be non-banks, and we already see it. I mentioned one; there's dozens. It's not just one. Like any other business, uh, you know, it will have its uh, its uh, disruption moment. Now, the question is: Is the disruption moment a Kodak moment, <laughs> where you know? You have it and then you're done, or is it an opportunity to transform yourself and uh, and compete with a new style of business that uh, that is emerging? I think look as a business, we will do the latter. Uh, I very much believe that uh, you know what is happening now is is very much matches the competencies that I try to grow within my business. I think the uh, global markets businesses will have to digitalize at the pace that they have never done anything before. The way the industry changed over the last two or three years, uh, you know, we saw more change than we saw in the previous 20. So, you know, this pace is going to accelerate even further. Uh, one needs to have a very clear strategy of, uh, you know, how they want to to play in this market. It may require a different level of skills. Uh, And clearly, the requirement for people coming into this business is to be what I call bilingual. So bilingual meaning markets uh, literate or becoming markets literate, but also people who can interact and understand technology so that that will change. So the the talent mix, if you like, is slightly going to change. But uh, I think for businesses to retain scale and uh, you know constantly look for ways to innovate and disrupt i think the future is very bright it's going to be a very different future to what you saw 10 years ago in global markets uh, but it's not necessarily uh, i think it, to me if you ask me one of the main reasons that I, I, I still get up every day and go to work in the morning smiling is that opportunity to be part of this transformation of the industry so i don't think this uh, this business is dead in any way shape or form
1: Great, thank you for the detailed answer. And I guess one more question, and it's more sort of motivational for students, um, just to give perhaps a tip. Um, so, what is one, I guess, character trait or skill that you think has helped you succeed in banking? What you would recommend to students to focus on to develop? I guess.
0: <laughs> I wish I could. Uh, I could give you something that uh, that uh, that you can develop. If you ask my managers, my managers would tell you I'm a good catalyst. I don't know what, uh, what that means to you. I guess to me it means that I can, they can throw me in a situation that can help facilitate the reaction and accelerate things. I, I would say I enjoy interacting with people. Uh, I would say I like to put together teams that uh, rally around a common purpose and that um, works to make his team perform and not himself perform.
1: Right. Yeah. Thank you for your answer. Thank you, Mr. Thanosopoulos, for coming today, uh, speaking for the students, for us. I think we all enjoyed all of the insights Um, and we look forward to seeing you more with us in the future.
0: Thank you very much.